I'm excited to preach this text to you, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 10 through 14. And I want to invite you to stand if you can. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Please be seated. Yes, Lord, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, Lord. Be with us. We need you. Speak to us. Give us life through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of you reminded me that this past week, last Monday, June 6th, was the 7th, 8th anniversary of D-Day. The day, June 6, 1944, when the American troops and their allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. Operation Overlord. It was the largest amphibious invasion in the history of warfare. On June 6, 1944, more than 150,000 brave young soldiers from the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, other places stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, in a bold strategy to push the, the Nazis out of Western Europe and turn the tide of the war for good. Did they, did they marks the inauguration of victory? Did they was similar to the first fruits? They guaranteed that the victory was to come. It was a long, painful, deadly, and joyful day. One article says, Ultimately, over 4,400 identified soldiers, sailors, airmen, airmen, and coast guardsmen died on D-Day, with an estimated 5,000 or more were lost at sea in air battle or otherwise were not identified. Their sacrifice and the valiant efforts of all troops turned the tide of the entire war on that day. But what is interesting is that was... Only May 8th of the following, following year, 1945, almost one year later after D-Day, that we have VE, Victory in Europe Day, when Germany unconditionally surrendered its military forces to the Allies. And that's when the victory inaugurated, D-Day became victory what? Consummated. 
almost one year between the inauguration and the consummation. Between D-Day and V-Day, there were many battles with many casualties. After D-Day, despite knowing that he, would be he was defeated, Hitler unleashed all his available resources to harm those who would be victorious. And of course, every illustration is imperfect, but I believe that this is a good illustration for us to understand our present reality as we walk our Christian journey. The coming of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension would be similar to D-Day. Victory inaugurated. And we long for His second coming when it's victory consummated. I read before and I'm going to read again because I think it's beautifully written. And in Naseli he writes, Right now we are living in the period between D-Day and V-E-Day. Jesus has already won the victory but he has not yet consummated. The kingdom, the kingdom is already, but also not yet. And like Adolf Hitler, after D-Day, the dragon is raging because he knows he doesn't have much long. He knows his time is short. He knows that Christ has decisively defeated him, so he's taking his rage on Christ's church by attempting to deceive them and to devour them with persecution. So the day is coming, according to Romans 16, verse 20, when God will curse Satan under our feet. But between this time, we know that Satan is furious. We saw last Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 12, he is angry. He knows that his time is short, and he's attacking the church. During the, this present interval, between the age to come and this present age, we have this enemy, Satan, that Paul presented to us earlier here in Ephesians 6, the devil. And he has his schemes, his strategies to inflict pain upon the church. But here's the beauty. The victory has not only been inaugurated and the victory is not only secure in Christ, but He's so gracious that He empowers us to fight the remaining battles that we have. Amen? So, so, so that's how gracious, how loving, how wonderful He is. He not only guarantees the victory, but He also empowers us to fight these battles that we have. And He empowers us by giving His own armor to us. And that's why we have been walking through Ephesians now and looking at the armor of Christ, the armor of God, the armor that God has given to His people. And actually the armor is nobody else but Jesus Christ Himself. So that's where we are in Ephesians as we, we start walking through the armor as we are talking about spiritual warfare. And that's God's armor. And that's important. That's not the Roman soldier's armor. Because we are tempted to do what? To always be looking at the Roman soldier. And we want to see the pictures of the Roman soldiers. We want to know how the Roman soldier is dressed. But the truth is that Paul is not looking at the Roman soldier. Where is Paul looking at? The Old Testament, to Christ. The prophecies of the Messiah. And that's all he saw Last Lord's Day, how the armor is found in the Old Testament. 
So the belt of truth in Isaiah 11.5. The breastplate of righteousness we are going to see. Isaiah 59.17. The gospel of peace. The feet well dressed. Isaiah 52.7. The shield of faith. That's God himself. He's our shield. Psalm 84.11. The helmet of salvation, Isaiah 59, 17. The sword of the Spirit, Isaiah 11, 4, Isaiah 49, 2. So that's important, brothers and sisters. Paul is drawing from the well, not of the Roman culture, but out of the Old Testament. And he's looking at the armor of God found in the Old Testament, now given to his people. So we saw last Lord's Day, the call to stand, and then how to stand. So the call to stand is... Verse 14, therefore, therefore, in light of this enemy that you have, and in light of who you are in Christ, they have all the power available to you. Therefore, stand, he says. That's the main command, and then the other verbs are just going to complement. How are you going to stand? How are we as a church supposed to stand? And the first thing that he says is to Buck ourselves with the belt of truth. Strap around your waist the belt of truth. And we saw last Lord's Day, the belt of truth is Christ himself. The belt would bring stability, readiness to fight. And we are putting Christ Jesus around our, our waist as the church, so the church can stand firm. Jesus, like a belt, tightens our core together so we can stand firm. The devil will throw lies, slanders, in order to destroy the unity of the church. But having Christ Jesus around our core, having Jesus our belt of truth. And remember, the belt of truth is inseparable from love. Truth and love are inseparable. So as you're buckling the belt of truth, you're buckling yourself with love. The belt was the means to bind all the other parts together and give stability and strength to the core of the body. So we need Jesus Christ and Him alone to be the belt of this church, giving us stability, preserving us in His truth, in love. Amen? So that's all we saw last Lord's Day. And now Paul, Paul moves to the second piece of the armor, and he talks about the breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. So we as a church, we are supposed to stand firm and withstand, not only with the belt of truth, but now with what? The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covered the warrior's thorax and part of his back. So the breastplate, the Greek word is thorax, and would cover this part here, so the vitals. So where you have your heart, the lungs, the intestines, those would be your vital parts. And that's what, exactly what the breastplate would cover and protect so, for example, in 1 Samuel 17, 5, Goliath is a mighty warrior, and he comes to battle, and what is he wearing? He's wearing a breastplate. The Hebrew word speaks of a relatively flexible military scale of body armor for protection in stopping piercing weapons. So in Nehemiah 4, 16, remember Nehemiah, as they're building the wall, they're being persecuted, being attacked, and remember how they are working on the wall? They have a sword in their hands, and they are also dressed with a breastplate as they are working on the wall. Because they are not only building the wall, but they are fighting battles too. In Second Chronicles twenty-six fourteen, 
It says, And Uzziah, the king, prepared for all the army. So here's what he prepared for all the army. Shields, spears, helmets, and coats of mail, breastplate. Stones for his leaning. In Revelation 9.9, we hear the hosts of Satan, and they are pictured as locusts, grasshoppers, coming to attack the earth, and they have breastplate. Just because soldiers, you went to battle, you had to have your breastplate. That's why it's so important. So today we have the vest, the bulletproof vest that soldiers will wear into battle. And we were remembering the hobbit. Remember Oakenshield. And he says, Mr. Baggins, come here. And he comes and he gives to him the mithril. Would be similar to a breastplate to, to preserve his, his vitals. Yeah. So that's very important. What is protecting the heart, the intestines, the lungs, the vital parts of a person. But to understand better what Paul is doing here, we need to go back to the Old Testament. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. So in Isaiah 59, that's where Paul is primarily borrowing all this imagery of the, the armor. And it says in verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, or his ear, though they cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So he's introducing this by praising God's mercy and power and showing man's sinfulness. And then he goes on, and you can see in verses 8 through 9, look at verses 8 through 9. So now the Lord starts showing the sins of Israel, and he highlights the problem of righteousness among his people. So he says, the way of peace, look at verse 8, the way of peace, shalom, they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and what? Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Then look at verse 14. Justice is turned back, and what? Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. So then he goes on, verses 16 through 17. And he saw that there was no man... And wondered that there was no one to intercede. There is no mediator, no righteous mediator here. Then the Lord Himself and His own arm brought Him salvation. And His what? Righteousness upheld Him. He put on what? Righteousness as His breastplate. 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So you can see in Isaiah that there is a lack of righteousness in the land. There is a lack of righteousness in the whole earth. The Lord is looking and he can't find anything. He can't find anyone righteous. So what does he do? He sends his arm. And we know in Isaiah who the arm of the Lord is, is the Messiah. He sends his arm to come and accomplish the righteousness that's missing. And this arm comes dressed with righteousness. So one scholar says, clothing, Motir, he says, clothing is always a metaphor for character, commitment, and endowment, endowment for the task. Righteousness, salvation, vengeance, and zeal are all aspects of the divine nature. When the Lord puts on this clothing, He's publicly revealing what He is. That's what the Lord is doing. As he's putting the breastplate of righteousness. He's showing Himself to be righteous to a people who has no clue what righteousness is because they all, they're all unrighteous. So the question becomes, what is righteousness? Right? We, in the Christian faith, in the Christian life, we talk so much about righteousness. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of salvation. And in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. Think about the Reformation. All the war, theological war during the Reformation. And the justification, righteousness, was one of the main battlefields where this whole war was playing. And then if we were asking you, so for example, somebody asks you, Lee, you guys talk so much about righteousness. What is righteousness? Or Sam, I, I, you guys sing about righteousness. I, I dare not trust the same frame, but holy Lee, in Jesus' name. And then he say, you're saying that your only hope is in Christ's blood and His righteousness. What is righteousness? How do we answer what is righteousness? What righteousness is? So let's invite the smart guys to help us. Amen? So, Jeffrey Niehaus, he says, Righteousness throughout the Bible means only one thing, conformity to a standard. In matters of biblical righteousness, the standard is God's nature to which He is always faithful, and to which humans may be faithful in some degree with divine help. So righteousness is conformity to a standard. So that's how the ancient people would understand righteousness. Is there is a standard, and you've got to match that standard. That's a righteous person. He is in conformity to that standard. He goes on, he says, the fundamental definition of righteousness, the one that was understood in the ancient Near East, is conformity to a standard, where biblically the standard is God's nature, in whose image and likeness we are made, and to whose image and likeness by the power of Christ we will be made to conform. So he says, thus the final goal of sanctification is glorification or perfect righteousness. Conformity to God's glorious nature. So we can conclude, therefore, God's always righteous. He's always faithful to the standard of his own nature. 
God's righteousness is God's faithfulness to his own nature. And a righteous man is one who conforms to that standard. That's why the Lord is looking and he's not seeing anyone righteous. No one is conforming to his standard of holiness, morality. What is a righteous person? One who is in conformity to God's standards. And what is God's standards? His own nature, his own character. See, a lot of times we sing, we say things, and we don't understand. And that's a beautiful doctrine. The doctrine of the righteousness of God. How to be justified. And that's inseparable from the doctrine of sin. The scripture is clear that because of original sin, all mankind is fallen. So we use that terminology, fallen. The fall, the fall of Adam. And I have heard some scholars say, no, we should not be using the, the terminology fall. I think it's a beautiful terminology. We have fallen from the sanctuary of God, so we fell with Adam from the abode, the the dwelling of God, not only that, but also we fell from that conformity to the standard. So sin makes us fall short of that standard of God's holiness. It's interesting in Romans chapter 3, as Paul is bringing to the conclusion that all, all is unrighteous. There is no one righteous. He brings Isaiah 59 into one of those texts. No person is born in conformity to God's standards, and that's to be righteous. That's why there is no one righteous besides Jesus. So sin is the opposite of righteousness. And we see that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Look at the contrast, or look at the parallel that Paul traces here. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become what? Righteousness. Do you see the parallel? God the Father made God the Son to be the sin bearer, so that we might become what? Righteousness. So you see the contrast between sin and righteousness. That's why with Adam's fall, with the sin of Adam, the whole entire race is unrighteous, lacking conformity, to God's standards. Uh, or 1 John 5.17. John says, All, and the Greek word there is adikia. Dikos, justice, righteousness. So he's literally saying, All unrighteousness is sin. Sin makes us unrighteous before God. So we stand as unrighteous people before God because we are unrighteous by nature in Adam and unrighteous by action. <laughs> our deeds, it's not just inside, our deeds show that we are unrighteous. We are born in a, in a state not of conformity, but in a state of deformity. We are not born in conformity with God's standards, but we are born in deformity. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, that by nature we are what? Children of wrath. By nature 
by birth, by conception, we are already conceived in sin, in unrighteousness, and falling short of that perfect standard. So in Isaiah 59, we see the Lord looking around, trying to find one righteous, and no one, no one is perfectly conforming to his standards. So the Lord comes and fights for his people. And he comes and fights with what? He puts the breastplate of righteousness. He's covered. His heart, his vitals are covered in righteousness to reveal him to be the righteous Lord. So the Lord comes to fight in the person of the arm of Yahweh. We saw that. It's beautiful how he says. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Isaiah 59, verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And I argue last Sunday that the belt of truth is Jesus Christ. And I will argue that the breastplate of righteousness is whom? Jesus Christ also. So, Isaiah 59 is clearly speaking of the Messiah, the, the arm of Yahweh. He's an extension of Yahweh. And he comes dressed with the righteousness in order to provide and bring the perfect standard of faithfulness to God's people. So Jesus is the perfect demonstration of conformity to God's standards. Amen. That's why Jesus is the only righteous one. He's the only who perfectly conforms to God's standards. In Isaiah 53, it's beautiful. Because in Isaiah 53, 1, we hear about the arm of the Lord. So we, we could trace this whole theology of righteousness just through the book of Isaiah. The gospel is all there. So, for example, in Isaiah 53, 1, we hear about the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that's the Messiah. And what is another name for the Messiah in Isaiah 53? The suffering servant, the servant of Yahweh. And then we read in verse 11. Look at that, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, the servant, the arm of the Lord, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall who? The righteous one, the Messiah, the arm of the Lord, the one from Isaiah 59. The righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted what? Righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see where Paul is getting? Second Corinthians 5 that we read earlier. He's borrowing from Isaiah 53, 11. So the servant is the righteous one and he makes God's people righteous. Beautiful passage also in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, the context is the lack of righteous shepherds to lead God's people. There is a lack of righteous people in leading God's flock. And then the Lord says, all right, there is no one righteous to lead. What's going to happen? I'm going to send a righteous shepherd to guide them. So we, we read, behold, the days are coming, verse 5 through 6. Declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute what? Justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. What is his name? 
the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So like a warrior, king, the shepherd will come and execute righteousness. Or Zechariah 9, verse 9. Here's what Zechariah says about the Messiah to come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And how is he described? Righteous and having salvation is he. We start seeing this theme of righteous, righteousness, the lack of righteousness among God's people, and the need of a righteous one to come and embody righteousness for God's people. So, Jesus is the righteous one. We see that also in the New Testament, not only the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. So, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and became what? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, in Romans chapter 3, Paul shows the there is no one righteous, and the only way for a sinner to be counted righteous is by believing faith in the righteous one, who is Jesus Christ. And then you start to see the, the, how inseparable righteousness and faith is from each other. The righteous one is the one who is faithful to God's standards. The one who embraces all God's standards, and that's Jesus Christ. And how are we, how are we counted righteous? When we by faith embrace Jesus, the righteous one. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is also talking about the, the armor of God. And he's, instead of saying the breastplate of righteousness, he says the breastplate of faith. Because it's inseparable. Faith and righteousness. They're very, they're deeply connected to each other. So, in Isaiah 61.10, we read this beautiful text about the Messiah, the Lord now giving the robes of righteousness to His people. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of what? Righteousness. He has put righteousness over me. So the Messiah clothed himself with righteousness. We saw in Isaiah 59, 17. We saw in Isaiah 50, 53, 11 that the Messiah secured that righteousness for his people. And now we see him giving that righteousness to his people. How glorious, how beautiful is this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, when Paul says, Stand therefore, Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I believe he's talking about, once again, put on Christ Jesus. Put on the new man. Put on the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. So, Jesus, and I'll put it right here, Jesus is our righteousness and he enables us to walk righteously. That's very important. 
Because there is debate as you come to, as you're studying this text here, you're going to have some scholars debating and arguing about um, among themselves as is Paul referring to positional righteousness or is Paul arguing and speaking about ethical righteousness? What is the difference between positional and ethical? Positional is something that has nothing to do with you, you're just declared righteous. And that's what happens in justification. We are declared righteous. So there is a positional righteousness. We are righteous in God's eyes because of our position in Jesus Christ. And then there are the other camp that says, no, no, Paul is not talking about that. Paul is only, only talking about ethical righteousness. What is ethical righteousness? To behave righteously. To behave in a way that conforms to God's character. And we are called to do that. And I think there is no need to argue about that because... Anyone who is positionally righteous, anyone who is in Christ, will, he must walk in righteous paths. Amen? So I don't think we need to argue about that. I think both, and that's what we need to hold. To both these truths are here. So, for example, uh, let me go back here. So, for example, in Romans 4 and 5, Paul says that we are justified by faith alone. So he's talking about positional righteousness. We have been justified by faith in Christ. Only faith. Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness to him. And that's what Paul is telling us. We are by faith positionally righteous. And, but then he moves to chapter 6 and he talks about righteousness as an action. Something that we are doing and acting. So for example, in, in Romans chapter 6 verse 13, Paul says, Do not present your members or the weapons to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of what? Righteousness. And he's not talking about positional righteousness. He's talking about what? Ethical righteousness. Doing the righteous thing. So the truth that we, we are united with the righteous one. If you are in Christ, you are in the righteous one, and the righteous one is in you. Amen? Positional. That will consequently affect your ethical life, your behaviors, how you live. So, for example, Paul says, continuing in Romans chapter 6, he says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of what? Slaves of what? Slaves of what? So he's treating righteousness as a, as a Lord. As a Lord that commands us to do, and the Lord Jesus is the righteous one, and he commands us to walk in righteousness. So we don't need to divorce this beautiful couple that has been united by God. Judicial and ethical righteousness. Positional and ethical righteousness. They have been united by God. Let's keep the two there. Uh, we see also more of this in Ephesians chapter 4, for example, and we see how Paul now is he's applying to the ethical aspect of righteousness, how we are supposed to live. Once we are in Christ, that's what he presented in chapters 1 through 3, we are in Christ, the righteous one, now you live righteously. So, for example, in, in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul commands the Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God 
in true what? Righteousness. And he's talking about actions here, behavior. Now that we are children of God, we can put on God Himself. We clothe ourselves with God's character. We can walk in righteousness. And in Ephesians 5, once again, Ephesians 5, verses 6 and 9, through 9, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And we all say hallelujah, amen. Walk as children of light. You were birthed into the kingdom of light, now you need to walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and what? Right, related to righteousness and true. So, as we put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's Jesus Christ Himself, we will be protected from Satan's evil weapons. The evil one will try to attack us with unrighteous schemes, crooked weapons, but as long as we have Jesus Christ alone, He will cover our vitals as a church. And the more we walk in righteousness, the more we use our members as weapons of righteousness, the less foothold we give to Satan to attack us. And that's... I listened to a sermon of a preacher who I love very much, very, I respect him very much, but he was saying... He was arguing. He had two sermons on the breastplate of righteousness. And the, the two sermons was all about justification by faith. It was all about positional righteousness. How this text has nothing to do with ethical righteousness. And he was saying how... I remember, he, I think it was, he said something like, Good luck with your righteous behavior protecting you from Satan. As if righteous behavior cannot protect us from the attack of Satan. I'll disagree with that. And Paul disagrees with that because Paul says in Ephesians, uh, I think 4, early on, he says, for us not to give a foothold to the devil by being bitter and angry. But instead, if we live righteously, we will avoid giving Satan foothold. So uh, I just think we need to be careful in... And sometimes emphasizing too much one aspect of a doctrine and then we overlook the other aspect. So I like what Clint Arnold, he says, uh, Possessing God's righteousness necessarily leads to a life of holiness. You cannot be in the righteous one and not walk righteously. Amen? You cannot be in the kingdom of light and have a lifestyle of darkness. So possessing God's righteousness necessarily leads to a life of holiness. The principle Paul is establishing here is that the practice of sin and the disregard of God's call to a life of purity and integrity render one vulnerable to successful attacks of the evil one and his emissaries. Righteousness becomes an important weapon to defend against demonic attacks. Walk in righteousness, walk in holiness. Of course we will be attacked. But now, try walking sin. A life lacking righteousness. And see what Satan is going to do with you. 
walk in righteousness, you will be attacked. What is going to be the result? You will overcome. Walk in unrighteousness and let this, the, the devil attack you. And he will have a party there. So we need both. So John, for example, he says in John chapter 2, verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, so many people want to argue about the doctrine of justification and it's just God's righteousness imputed and glory to God, but then suddenly we stop as if that righteousness, as now that we are in Him who is the righteous one, will not affect our lives. No, look at John says, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Or he says in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So as we put on Christ as our righteousness, the only perfect standard before the Holy God, we will walk in righteousness. Amen? And the more we put on the breastplate of righteousness, the more guarded we will be against the unjust and unrighteous attacks of Satan and his army. So for example, to a church struggling with unity, the church in Rome, they're having problems with division. Look at Paul says, where the kingdom of God is not a matter of what? Eating and drinking, because they're having issues with eating and drinking that church. I said, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is not a matter of drinking and eating. And the church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. The church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. Paul said, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God, the church is to reflect what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And yes, we are placed, the righteousness is a gift, but then it's manifested in the life of the church. So, we start seeing how important it is for us to understand this breastplate is Christ Himself, and as we put Christ Himself, He will, He will work in and through us. So you can walk in righteousness. So my prayer is that this church here will be clothed with Christ's righteousness. As we saying, my hope is built in nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. May, 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 may this be our hymn. Amen? Let us protect ourselves from the temptation of Satan to make us believe that we can gain acceptance with God by something good that we do. And that's what happens to a lot of churches. Suddenly, they start believing that by doing some cool things, they're getting acceptance with God. Or maybe if we, need to, if we please more the unsaved, God will love us more. No, we've got to remember that. No, we, we have the righteousness of Christ, and that's enough. We don't need anything else to stand before God. Amen? So let us clothe ourselves, our vital organs, with Christ alone. Let us sing about Christ. Let us preach about Christ. Let us pray in Christ's name. And let us strive to know Christ alone as a church. Let us be a church just like in that parable in Luke 18. Let us be a church of people who are always beating on their chests. The breastplate of righteousness. And saying what? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us, Lord. Because apart from you, we have no righteousness. Amen? 
And now we flip the other side of the coin. So one side of the coin is Jesus is our righteousness. The other side of the coin is since He is our righteousness, we as a church must walk righteously. Amen? So the more we walk righteously, clothed with Christ, the more we are able to stand against the enemy in the evil day. Our hearts, the center of our emotions, affections, and think will be protected in the evil day. So I pray that we will be a church that continue, always continually dressing ourselves with righteous actions. Being righteous towards one another. Look at Paul says in 2 Timothy. And that's how the preaching is going to help us walk righteously. Because our, the preaching of God's word will put our eyes on Christ. Christ is the righteous one. So Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in what? Righteousness. That's what the word of God does. The revelation. The word of God is the revelation of Christ to us. And trains us, corrects us, reproves us, and trains us and guides us to do what? Walk righteously before our God and each other. So the more we sit under the word of God, the more we delight in the scriptures, the more we long to behold Christ in his word, the more we will be training righteousness. And that's how we will withstand in the evil day. Amen? And that's how we have withstood. And that's how we will continue. Having Christ alone as our breastplate of righteousness. And once we are clothed with Christ's righteousness, He will empower us to walk righteously. The unrighteous one. Who is the unrighteous one? Satan. He's the embodiment of unrighteousness. He will attack us with all sorts of unrighteous weapons. And He will try to attack our hearts. The center of our thinking. He will try to attack us to think wrong thoughts, sinful thoughts about God. When we, we lose someone who we love, when we lose a job that we had for so long, when a spouse leaves us, Satan loves to use the opportunity to make you, to attack your heart and pierce you with thoughts, evil thoughts about God. Do you see how he doesn't love you? Do you see how he doesn't care about you? And we need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, protected. No, 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 no. The last thing I want to say is, in the Bible, part of the vital organs protected by the breastplate is the intestines, your viscera. We often speak about affection and emotions referring to the heart in our culture. The heart is the center of emotions for us. That's why we always say, I love you so much, and we say, the heart... But in those days, in that culture, actually, it wasn't the heart. Do you know what was the center of affections? Your stomach, your intestines. So when it says, for example, in Mark chapter 6, that Jesus, the good shepherd, looked at the crowd and, and says, and he had compassion on them, literally says that his intestines were moved. And we... When you're going through pain, emotional pain, you know you have problems with your stomach. That's why sometimes it's translated as, for example, in, in Colossians 3, 
chapter 12, when Paul tells us to put on compassionate hearts, the King James has bowels of mercy. And Satan will use unrighteous, unrighteous and sinful means to pierce our inward parts where our affections are, our affections towards the Lord and our affections towards one another. He will strive to do that. He loves to do that. To try to pierce you right in your intestines. Right there. And squeeze and turn around to mess with your affections towards the Lord and towards one another. He will use, he will use lies, petty offenses, self-centeredness, selfish ambition, and our own sins and mistakes to damage and inflict a deadly wound in our affection towards one another. So therefore, let us have the breastplate of righteousness to protect us, acting righteously towards one another, conforming to God's standard of love and compassion and patience and forgiveness. Amen? So let us stand firm in the power of Jesus' strength, putting on His armor, wearing Jesus as the breastplate. Jesus alone can protect us from God's righteous judgment. And Jesus alone can protect us from Satan's unrighteous weapons. And Jesus alone can empower us to walk righteously with righteous affection and righteous deed towards one another. So I pray that the Lord will continue training us, disciplining us, guiding us through the preaching, through His Word, to behave more and more righteously. Be righteous as He is righteous. Amen? Father, we thank You. We thank You for sending Your Son, the Righteous One, to make sinners righteous in Your eyes. Thank You for changing us, transforming us from sons of unrighteousness to sons of righteousness. Help us Help us as a church, Lord, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, who is Christ our Lord. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that you continue, continue empowering us to stand with Christ, protecting our vitals, protecting our heart, protecting our intestines, our affections, the way we think. So help us, Lord. Help us to walk righteously before you in this unrighteous world, Lord. Help us to be light shining. Thank you for Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. It's in Him and Him alone that we stand before you. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.